Good morning, Woodland Hills. Hope you're all doing great. That was a great time of worship, wasn't it? I love it. 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 Um, this is a third of six sermons I'm doing in a 24-hour period. <laughs> it just turned out like this. Um, the, the second one was I did earlier this morning. I, I had the opportunity to lead the chapel for the Detroit Lions. I hope you don't think I'm a, a, a traitor. For, hey, the Vikings didn't invite me. The Lions did. What do you do? What do you do? So I, I preached on uh, turning the other cheek, and, and <laughs> no. no, I didn't. But uh, it was a great time. Uh, uh, God really moved and uh, had some great ministry uh, afterwards. Now, I say that to say this. Uh, they gave me, as a gift of appreciation, two very good Vikings tickets. I can't use them. Uh, i got to preach here uh, next ser- service. But... What I'm seeing here with these two tickets is some kid in Rwanda is going to go to school. All right? So here's what I want to do. After the service, uh, after the service, I want to uh, beeline out there and at uh, 10.15, 10.16, right around there, <laughs> who knows, um, uh, let's have a little auction, okay? And we'll take pledges. I know most people don't carry their checkbooks everywhere, so we'll take a pledge. We trust people here. And, and we're just going to do some bidding here, all right? Is that okay with you, friend? That's a beautiful ministry, and I think it's a good way. Okay, so stick around. If you can go to a Vikings game, get some good seats here. They're like $70 a piece, so starting bid will be $140. And so I'm thinking someone's going to go to school with these two tickets, all right? All right. Ah, good. We will be taking questions Hopefully, uh, at the end of this message, last week was terrible. I was terrible last week. I was, I was, I was terrible. Uh, I'm going to try, try, try to leave some time at the end of this message for some questions. Uh, so if you, uh, as I'm going through this message and you have questions about what I'm talking about, uh, text them in to that number and we'll try to get to a couple of those at the end of the uh, message. Um, so we're talking about the Blessed Revolution and that's focused on the Beatitudes. Uh, and we are now coming to the last two of the Beatitudes, and next week we'll kind of wrap this whole series up. Uh, some cool stuff has happened as a result of this series. Uh, so we're looking at the peacemakers and the persecuted. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are the persecuted. It comes out of verse 9 and 10 of Matthew chapter 5, which reads thus. Because, oh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba, Father, I thank you for your life, your shalom, which is in this place. Uh, I pray, God, for everybody in this auditorium and all of our wonderful parishioners and uh, those who are tuning in through television or any other means. And uh, God, we pray that your spirit would invade our hearts and invade our minds Invade our very beings to open us up, God, to receive your word. Make us fertile soil that your word could uh, plant seeds in and grow the kingdom and permeate every area of our life, Lord God. Okay, pray, Lord, that, that you would use this message to root out of our being anything that is contrary to being a peacemaker, anything that leads to conflict uh, and, and struggles. And, and Father, I just pray that your shalom would just invade us and that we'd be a people who really understand the blessedness of being persecuted, of standing out and being different. So, Lord, just infuse this word with your power, with your authority, for your glory, in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 
Amen. So I'll first talk about peacemakers, and that'll take the bulk of the message, and then I'll talk about being persecuted. Uh, blessed are the persecuted. Um, if I see that I am not going to have time uh, to take questions, I'll scratch the persecuted, and we'll take questions, because I really need to take the questions. So, uh, But the bulk of the message will be on uh, the peacemakers. It's my impression, as I've heard several messages uh, along these lines, um, talk to people about what it means to be a peacemaker, that um, sometimes people think it means uh, you're good at avoiding conflict. And we here in Minnesota, at least, we're too good at avoiding conflict. We are Minnesota nice, right? That Scandinavian thing. And we smile and are polite, and even, even though our, we've got anger in our heart and, and our soul, but we cover it up with a smile, and we think that that's being a peacemaker. Oh, I'm just so peaceful. That is not what Jesus means by being a peacemaker. The Bible never encourages us to have any sort of duplicity. It says that we're to be speaking the truth, and truth is aletheia in Greek, ah, which means not, and lanthanos, which means to cover. So we're to be a people who do not cover. So it is to walk in the truth. But to be honest, there should be no duplicity, no faking, no pretending. We should deal with stuff in love right when it occurs. So peacemaker does not mean you'll avoid conflict. Um, it also doesn't mean that you're just skilled at resolving arguments, although that's a very nice thing to have if you're uh, trained in that. But, but uh, what Jesus means by peacemaker is far more profound than this. It's not simply three tips on how to end conflict. It has to do with our very being. In fact, it's interesting that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, and refers to them as a noun. Uh, peacemaking is not something we do primarily, it's something we are. We do it because we are it. We are peacemakers as part of our identity, as we'll see here in a little bit. Uh, now to get at the profundity of what Jesus means by a peacemaker, I want to zoom out a little bit and do some theology. We like theology around here, don't we? Good. Uh, so we're going to zoom out a little bit. And ask the question, why is there conflict in the first place? Because it's only if we understand the theological context in which uh, peacemaking is being used that we can really understand the depth of the meaning of this uh, noun that we are called to be. So let's zoom out. One of my favorite philosophers in ancient Greece is a man named Heraclitus, a very strange man, a very arrogant man, uh, very paradoxical. He wrote with a lot of paradoxical stuff, but he was so insightful. Uh, at a time when everyone else was uh, like Plato zooming out into the eternal realms and seeing all as being just one big solid thing, Heraclitus saw that reality is all in flux. And that what looks stable is actually in flux. That movement is, is fundamental to the nature of things. That reality is a verb more than it's a noun. And things that look stable are actually in motion. It's, stability is just a, a relative thing. He saw all this. Now we today know from quantum physics and other means that, that he was right. Everything's in motion. Energy, it's all in motion. It's incredible. Verb, there's a verbal quality to reality that permeates everything. But Heraclitus, way before physics uh, ever came around, he saw this. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant guy. One of the things he said that I thought was so insightful is he says, war is the father of all and the king of all. It makes gods of some and men of others, makes some free and makes some slaves. And what he's getting at is that he, he saw that, that there's a conflict, a struggle that permeates everything. And it accounts for the arbitrariness of life. Everything happens so arbitrarily. Uh, you know, some are, are gods, some are men. Some are free and some are, 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 are slaves. And there's this arbitrariness to things. And it has to do with this conflict that, that, that permeates everything, this war that permeates everything. 
Another thing he said is, he says, we must realize that war is universal. All things come into being and pass away through strife. He saw that there is a struggle to exist all over the place. Everything's struggling to exist, but it ultimately loses. It dies. And everything is tending towards decay, but it struggles to fight that. Insightful guy. Now, he was absolutely right about the world as we find it. But what Heraclius didn't know and what he really couldn't have known, he lived around 500 B.C. in ancient Greece. He couldn't know this. But he didn't know that God did not create the world this way. God created the world to be a, a place that reflects his glory. Uh, the, the cosmos was supposed to reflect his shalom. We translate that peace sometimes, shalom, but it, it means more than that. It has to do with wholeness and harmony and, and integration and participating in the full life of God. So the creation was meant to be this beautifully, infinitely complex thing that manifests the, the harmony of God. But because God is a social God, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he likes to do everything out of relationships, in relationship with others. So he creates angels, called gods in the Old Testament, and he creates human beings. And to the angels, he gives authority over fundamental aspects of nature. And to the humans, he gives authority over the animals and over the environment of the earth. And that's our say-so. We get to influence the way things go. And in God's design, the angels and humans were supposed to use our say-so to bring all that's under our domain of authority into line with his will. And by that means, the whole cosmos would reflect the harmony, the beauty, the integratedness of God. Really, in its own way, reflect the Trinity. That's how it was supposed to go. But we know from Scripture that that's not how it actually went down. Uh, there was, because... Angels as well as human beings are free. There's a choice involved in this. And, and so there was a major rebellion in the angelic realm. We're not told much about it, but we're giving clues to indicate that there was a rebellion headed up by one who came to be called the adversary, Satan, Satan. And uh, uh, these, this angelic realm that rebelled now use their say-so, their authority over aspects of creation. They use it at cross-purposes with God. And so instead of bringing uh, everything under the will of God and having it integrated into the will of God, they're trying to uh, use it in rebellion against God, which is, is disintegration, disintegrate. They're not integrating it into God's loving design. And so all that's under their authority, fundamental aspects of creation, are corrupted. Uh, they don't operate the way they're supposed to operate because they've been polluted by the rebellious wills of these angels. And then we are told that human beings were co-opted into their rebellion, seduced into their rebellion. And so the authority that we had over the animals and over the environment was surrendered over to them. And so now, even in the animal kingdom and on the earth, things are corrupt. It's Nothing operates the way it's supposed to operate. Everything's been polluted. It doesn't manifest the shalom and the harmony of God. It rather manifests the disintegration of these rebellious wills, human and angelic. Paul describes it in Romans 8 when he says the whole creation's been subjected to futility uses this word, matayotes. That's going to be a very important word for this, uh, this, this message. And one of the wonderful things about coming to Woodland Hills Church is you get to learn Greek and Hebrew a lot, right? We love that stuff. So matayotes, everybody say it, matayotes. Matayotes. Okay, it's an important word. Lock it and remember it. I'll be using it a lot. It, it refers to depravity or frailty or what is devoid of appropriateness. Uh, it doesn't, when something doesn't operate the way it's supposed to operate, it's not functioning appropriately, it's matayotes. And when there's conflict, striving, decay, uh, it's, it's matayotes. And see, this is what Heraclitus was seeing. 
that there's matayotes that permeates the entire creation. Didn't know that that's not how God created it. He didn't, he didn't have an explanation for why it is this way. It just is. Matayotes, it's all in flux. It's all in decay. Everything's falling apart. It doesn't reflect the harmony of God, the, the beauty, the shalom, the wholeness of God. It rather reflects war. It's universal, permeates everything. Everything's disintegrating. Look around. Everything you see right now is in the process of decay. Ooh! Great news. Now, things look solid like the stand and me, but, but we're all disappearing. We're all wearing down. We call it the second law of thermodynamics. So we're wearing out everything you see. We're like the wicked witch of the West. I'm melting, I'm melting, I'm precious. We're, 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 we're going out of existence. We're in the process of disappearing. Everything is. Matayotes permeates everything. And so if you've ever wondered why it is that the all-good God created this creation where your body is starting to ache and get flabby and gravity's starting to win and things aren't working appropriately, well, this is your explanation. Matayotes. It's a, it's a fallen war zone world we live in. And if you wonder why it is that an all-good God could create a, a cosmos where, where there's things like Hurricane Sandy that devastate people's lives, nature's running amok, and why there's things like life-negating, destroying varmints and parasites and viruses and bacteria and hookworms that get into people and, and why there's diseases like muscular dystrophy and cancer and leukemia and that, that, that rack people's body. If you've ever wondered about that, and I'm sure you have, well, I submit to you this is your answer. Matayotes. This world is corrupt. Nothing operates the way it's supposed to operate. Things are all dysfunctional. They're in a state of decay. There's strife and there's war that permeates the very fabric of, of, of reality. If you ever wonder how it is that the animal kingdom is just full of violence, millions of years before human beings ever came around, well, the answer I submit to you is matayotes. This world as it is now it doesn't operate the way God planned it to operate. This isn't God's perfect will for your life. The cancer, the disease, the parasites, the, the hurricanes, this isn't all part of God's wonderful plan. No, this is a world gone amok, a world in, in, caught up in a war, a, a world in which conflict, matayotes, permeates everything. But the good news is that God didn't leave us in this condition, praise God. Uh, God became a human being and entered into our matayotes world in order to free us from the matayotes. In fact, uh, God came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ and died on the cross for the purposes of defeating the principalities and powers that are corrupting everything and for the purpose of liberating human beings and restoring us to our rightful place over the earth and actually restoring all of creation, bringing harmony and wholeness to all of creation. He came to destroy the devil and his works, it says in 1 John chapter 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil and his works. A lot of times people think that he just came to save human beings, and he did do that for sure. But he had something cosmic in mind. Uh, it, was, it was about the whole creation. He came to, uh, to bring harmony, reconciliation uh, to all of God's creation, ending the matayotes, pollution in the cosmic uh, realm. It says in, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Jesus Christ was fully God. This is God robed in human flesh. And God was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, shalom, through his blood shed on the cross. Praise God. Uh, the, the cross is the ultimate expression of, of the kind of self-sacrificial love that God eternally is. It's, it, it reflects exactly God's that God's character, his, his essence, his very heart. 
God is this kind of love. And that perfect expression of love, where the creator God, the all-holy God, lowered himself to become a human being and die a God-forsaken death on the cross for a race of people who could deserve it less. It's the most beautiful expression of self-sacrificial love you could possibly imagine. And that expression of perfect love was like a nuclear bomb in the realm of darkness, in, in, the, the, in Satan's kingdom. And it... That love exploded, as it were. The power hold, the grip, the polluting force that the principalities and powers have on this earth. And that expression of love, in principle then, uh, broke the power of Matayotes, defeated uh, the devil, defeated the principalities and powers. That expression of love restored human beings to their rightful place. And that expression of love has now reconciled all things in heaven and on earth. And has brought peace, shalom, harmony, integratedness to all things, whether in heaven or on earth. Praise God. Now, that has happened in principle, but obviously, it's not yet manifested as fact. Last I checked, my body was still in a process of decay. Uh, the world is still very much a Matayotes world. Would you agree? Because um, there's an interval between what God does in fact on the cross and what is manifested as fact. This is what uh, New Testament scholars call the already not yet paradox of the New Testament. It's already happened, but we don't yet see it. And you find this paradox permeating everything in the New Testament. It's already happened, but we don't yet see it. We, leave, we live in this odd interval time between uh, the accomplished fact and the manifestation of the fact. And there's various analogies that people use to try to capture that. My favorite, uh, which may not be yours, but I'll, I'll try it out here, um, is like this. If you go into a dark room and turn on the light, from your perspective, the room is almost inst virtually instantaneously filled with light, right? There's no gap between turning it on and the room being filled with light. But if you were a muon, remember I've used this analogy before, a muon, which is a, a, a subatomic particle that exists for a fraction of a fraction of a second, a nanosecond, travels close to the speed of light. Okay? If you were a muon and you only exist for a fraction of a fraction of a second, then it would take most of your lifetime, maybe more than that, for that room to be filled up with light. If you were a muon, you see the light switch go on, and there'd be a long time. You gradually see the light slowly pushing back the darkness. Now, the room is lit in principle the minute the switch is turned on. But if you're a muon, there's a gap between what's happened in principle and what's manifested as fact. You following me on this? So from God's perspective, there's, there's virtually no gap between what he does on the cross and the manifestation of it. Because God's lived forever, so any length of time compared to his forever is infinitely small. I don't think God is out there in some timeless realm where there's no sequence to him, but, uh, uh, but, but it's virtually instantaneous because it's measured against the eternality of his being. But for us human beings who exist just for a little moment, well, golly, it's taken 2,000 years since he did this on the cross, and for all we know, it may take another 2,000 years. Uh, but it's in principle happened. You see, we live in this interval, and this is where our role as peacemakers comes in. We are to be a people in a world that does not yet manifest the shalom of God, a world that is yet subject to matayotes. We are to be a people who put on display what is already true in principle. We are to be, as it were, the, the, the cutting-edge light particles coming out of the light bulb, pushing back the darkness. Follow me on this? So you're a photon, is what I'm saying. You're, you're the cutting-edge photon. You're light. And now you're, you're there pushing back the darkness, all right? Push it back, push it back, way back. All right. 
You're a photon. You're a light bringer, okay? So Christ is the cosmic peacemaker. He, in principle, accomplishes it all on the cross. But our job now is to apply what he did on the cross, uh, to apply it to every, every aspect of the world, every person, every relationship, everything that we're involved in, to manifest that shalom. Our bodies, obviously, is still are part of the decaying world, all right? Uh, it's still part of the matayotes. We wear it down. Gravity wins. We're in that state of decay. But our spirits... Our spirits, praise God, our new, we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. We're redeemed. Our, our true identity participates in the heavenly realm. Our true identity participates in harmony and the integratedness of God. And so we are to, as we walk through life, to be putting on display what it looks like to be free of this matayotes, to be free of the conflict, to put on display the beauty and the harmony of God, making, bringing shalom to every conflict situation. And that is why Jesus says we're called the children of God. Because we reflect the character of God. We reflect the harmony of Abba Father. We've got his DNA in us, in our true identity, in our spirits. And so when we manifest that, we become little Abba lookalikes. We're the children of God. So what does this look like then? Let's get a little more practical here. Ask the question, why is there conflict in human relationships? The answer to that is this. All conflict in our life, in fact, all conflict in our inner being, not just in our relationships, but in our inner being. All of our anxiety, all of our struggles are the result of our having some aspect of our identity. Some aspect of what gives us life, our sense of worth, our sense of significance, our sense of security, having some aspect of that anchored in something that participates in the world of matayotes. We have some aspect of our identity, our worth, our significance, and security that's anchored in something that we have to struggle to get we have to struggle to keep. We have to struggle to protect. We have to fight for to protect if necessary. And when any part of our identity is rooted in matayotes, it's going to cause conflict out in our relationships and conflict within us. We, part, we are participating in the matayotes world when our identity is anchored in the matayotes world. I told you you needed to learn that word because I'm using using a lot. We, we, if our identity is anchored in decay, well, then we're participating in the decay, and so we'd be part of the Heraclitus struggle to fight back the decay. All conflict is a result of this. So, for example, if my if part of my identity, my sense of significance, my sense of importance, my sense of security was rooting in my stunning good looks, and you could easily understand why that would be a temptation, I'm sure. Um, if that's the case, well, then I'm going to have anxiety about that because I know on some level, I may not want to admit it, but my good looks are, are, are going away. And, you know, time, time is not kind to any of us. You know, it's just a matter of time before I'm going to be looking like, you know, one of those zombies you see in The Walking Dead or something. You know? We're all headed towards complete decay. You know? Dust you are, dust you shall return. So I'll have anxiety about that. And that anxiety will lead to conflict in my relationships. If ever somebody doesn't acknowledge my good looks or, or fails to compliment me or even worse, says that I'm ugly. Well, now, now I gotta defend myself, right? I've gotta, I've got, I can't let that go on. Uh, this is my identity you're talking about. So I'll have inner conflict and I'll have outside conflict. I'm participating in the world of matayotes. Or if my identity, sense of security is anchored in, say, my wealth. Well, I'm gonna have inner conflict and I'm gonna have outer conflict. I'll have inner conflict because, because I'll have anxiety. I might lose that wealth. I gotta cling to that wealth. I might not be able to acquire more wealth. You know, uh, someone might steal my wealth, so there'll be, there'll be anxiety inside. And then if somebody does threaten my wealth or steal my wealth or, or something of the sort, at least doesn't acknowledge my wealth, well, now I'll be angry. I'll get mad. I'll get defensive. I'll wanna fight. I'll do whatever is necessary to hang on to my wealth. 
Or if my identity or worth or security is rooted in how right I am, how smart I am, or my opinions on politics and religion are, 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 are the right ones, well, then I will have anxiety and inner conflict if I ever begin to doubt or question myself. My identity is at stake. And if you disagree with me, and you have arguments against my position, well, as we all know all too well, uh, you get big, you get mad, you get huffy-puffy, you got to fight to defend the rightness of your positions. Your identity is here at stake. All anxiety, all inner conflict, and all war, outer conflict, is a result of having an identity of worth, security, significance, rooted in something that participates in the world of matayotes, trying to cling to something that perishes, Something trying to, trying to freeze a river, trying to hang on to something that you know will eventually leave you. And it's true of individuals, it's true of families, of tribes, and of nations. All conflict is a result of this. But see, as we say so often around here, because it's so foundational, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that you die to the world of matayotes. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is that you, you understand that no part of your identity your core sense of self, your worth, your security, none of that should be anchored in anything that has to do with something that's perishing, something that you have to struggle to acquire and struggle to keep and struggle to defend. To be a follower of Jesus, you know it means that now your whole identity, all of your worth, all of your core sense of security is to be rooted in one thing and one thing alone, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What makes you feel fully alive, what makes you feel like you've got significance and importance, and what makes you feel secure has nothing to do with the Matayotes world. It's got everything to do with the way God loves you as revealed on the cross. And knowing that you're a child of God and that you're destined to live with Him forever, and knowing that you've got the Spirit of God inside of you, and knowing that you've got a treasure that cannot pass away. That's to be our whole sense of identity and worth. And when that is the case... When our identity is fully anchored in Christ and in nothing else, well, now you are free from the world of Matayotes. The world of Matayotes has got no claim on you. You may be good looking, or you may be butt ugly, but it just doesn't matter. If you, if you, if you are a child of God, then your worth comes from God, not your good looks. And so it's not something that time can take away. It's not something that any person can take away. It's solid. It's anchored. It's eternal. It's unchanging. God's love is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And that's where your identity is. And so they're free from having to worry about clinging to your good looks and, and, and defending your good looks. Or your wealth. You may be wealthy. You may be you're poor. In Christ, it doesn't matter. Because you know that you don't, if you are wealthy, you don't get any life from that. You should be the same whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Because your identity is anchored in something that's Completely different than that. Or the rightness of your opinions. It could be that you are the one person on the planet that's right about everything. I wouldn't want to hang around with you very long if, if you think you are that person, but it may be, who knows? Wonderful, but it doesn't make any difference. Whether you're completely right or mostly wrong, if you know you're a child of God, then the only thing that matters is that Jesus Christ died for you. You've got unsurpassable worth. You're loved now and you'll be loved forever, and that's all that matters. Take away the money, it doesn't matter. Take away the good looks, it doesn't matter. Prove me wrong and everything, it doesn't matter. I've got Jesus Christ. I, uh, what else do I need? What else do I need? I've got, as we sang earlier, He's all we need. And see, that is, that is so freeing. That, that this is the good news of, of the gospel. It's, it, it's, it's what makes the gospel good news is that you can be free. You can, this is freedom. And really, it's the only kind of freedom. To the degree that your identity is anchored in anything that has to do with the Matayotes world, you are in bondage. 
And the way you can know you're in bondage is that you have anxiety on some level. You're, you're, you're tired. Uh, you're struggling. There's this strife. You, you, you fit Heraclitus as a description. What it means is that you're not getting all your life from Christ. And so I just throw this out here right now. If you're finding that you're, if you're tired of worrying about your good looks, if you're tired of struggling to hold on to wealth, if you're tired and, and, and of being depressed because you didn't get the American dream and life isn't turning out the way you wanted it to turn out, if you're tired of always having to fight in conflicts and prove yourself right and worrying about how you appear, I would like to invite you to a completely different way of living, a completely different way of looking at yourself, a completely different way of relating to people, and that is through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Get all of your worth and identity in Him and in Him alone. And now you find that you are free. You, you, you know, you, you're never fully alive until you die. We're called to die. I'm not talking about physical death, but die to the world of Matayotes. Die to being Lord of your own life. And when you do that, Jesus says, if you lose your life, you'll find it. It's so good to find. Death is so good. Zombies don't worry about anything. Corpses don't worry about anything. I guess zombies do. You know, they're, they're trying to eat some more flesh. But if you're a corpse, you don't worry about anything. I, you're free. You're finally free. And you're fully alive. It's so good to not have to cling to anything. Even the, you don't even need to live any longer. You know, you, you can live life passionately when you no longer have to live. When you're okay dying. Uh, when you're free from all the entanglement of Matayotes, now you are free. When the sun says free, is free indeed. When your treasure is laid up in heaven, where the moth can't corrupt it and the thieves can't steal it, now you are free. And now you can be a peacemaker. And only now can you be a peacemaker. It's part of your identity because now you have the shalom of God, right? You're rightly related to God, so you have that shalom that comes out of that right relatedness. And now you're able to put that on display. When you can say with Paul, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me. Now you're in a position where you can put on display the peace of God. Manifest that. You can step out of the endless conflict of the Matayotes world. So here's an example of, of what I'm talking about. This week found out from a lady, I'll call her Sandy, named after the hurricane. I'll call her Sandy. And uh, she has a father who is a pastor, a conservative pastor. And she uh, admitted to him this week that she did not vote. <gasps> and her father became enraged. Father says, what is wrong with you? That is irresponsible, that is stupid, that is dumb, that is unchristian, that's un-American, that's unpatriotic. You know, you're dishonoring people who made sacrifices so that you could vote. Why on earth would you not take advantage of a privilege, a rare privilege that our government gives you? And don't you care, don't you care, don't you care that Obama's going to make the America a socialist country and the liberals are taking over and the moral perverts are going to run things and Christians are going to be thrown into prison, don't you care, etc., etc., etc. Now, if, 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 if Sandy uh, was one who got her identity from any part of the Matayotes world, she would have responded in anger. She would have got defensive. If, 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 if Sandy needed her father's approval uh, to be okay, or if Sandy needed to look smart to be okay, or needed to look uh, right, prove her opinions right to be okay, she would have gotten angry. Her, she would, her father's angry towards her, so she would have responded by getting angry back at him, defensive. And now, see, the father, from his anger, is bringing Matayotes into this relationship. The father, because of his anger, is now introducing a factor that is pulling them apart, disintegrating, all right? It has a power to disintegrate this relationship, Matayotes. And if Sandy was getting her identity from anything that could be affected by that, 
But then she would have contributed to the matayotes of the situation, this conflict, this ripping apart, this disintegration. So she'd get mad, which would make her father get madder, which would make her get madder. And father says meaner stuff, so she says even meaner stuff. And here we go. It's a spiral of hostility that characterizes all of world history. The merry-go-round that we've been doing from the moment of the fall. I insult you, you insult me back worse. I insult you even worse. You insult me even worse than that. That You pick up a, a hammer and hit me. I take a gun and blow you away. Then you go after my kids. And it's, oh, we will get a vengeance. I saw this a couple weeks on television. You know, some folks saying they got bombed or something. And they're like, Allah will avenge us. Allah will, will we will get retaliation. It's like, well, how's that been working for you the last 5,000 years? And it just goes on and on and on. But see, Sandy, praise God, had an identity that... She understood who she is in Christ, and, and she, she knows that, that all she really needs. She'd love to have her father's approval, but she doesn't need it to be okay. She'd love to be right, but she doesn't need it to be okay. She gets all of her life from Jesus Christ, her worth, her significance, and security. And so because of that, as she reminds herself of her identity, when her father is hostile towards her, trying to bring disintegration into this relationship, not intentionally, but that's what he's doing, she is able to manifest shalom. She's able to manifest peace. Because nothing that is central to her is being threatened. Nothing ever could be threatened because her identity is anchored in Christ. So she lets her father vent, and then she's able to respond gently, out of love, out of compassion. Uh, she's able to explain why she was led in this in, to, to, to not vote. Um, and the father didn't end up agreeing with her. In fact, the father still was angry, but you see, it diffused the situation. It brought peace, shalom, into the situation. That's how we're a peacemaker. It's not so much what we do, it's who we are. Because we don't get sucked into the endless spiral of hostility. You're a peacemaker. And when you can stay centered as a peacemaker, uh, what, what, what it does is it gives you, it positions you to have wisdom about how to respond in ways that will bring further peace. See, it's a proven neurological fact. Proven. That anger makes us stupid. I'm so serious. Anger makes us stupid. It does. Uh, when your amygdala gets activated, that's the part of your brain that sends out the chemical cocktails that says you either I should fight or, or flight, right? Uh, when, when, when that gets activated, your prefrontal lobe cortex, which is in charge of all your rational thinking, it shuts down. You, you, you get a, a myopic focus on the thing that threatens you. It's all you're thinking about is the threat. And that is, has a wonderful survival value out there in the wild. And so it had a wonderful survival value in our, in our ancient history. When you see the poisonous snake, you don't want to be thinking about theological uh, mysteries and what you need to, groceries you need to buy. No, you need to look at that poisonous snake. You need to focus and you need to immediately either decide you're going to step on it, which I would be hesitant to do, or run. <laughs> Fight or flight. But see, it, it has a survival factor uh, value out in, the, out in nature but in relationships, it's disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. Because it means that you're not going to be thinking at the precise time you need to be thinking. It means you're not going to have your eyes open to, to ways to respond that can bring reconciliation. Rather, your eyes are going to be closed to that. And it means you're not going to be listening to God about how God might lead you to respond in this situation. Anger makes us stupid. But see, as long as any part of our identity is rooted in the Matayotes world, as long as our identity is rooted in anything that we have to struggle to acquire and struggle to protect and fight to defend, then we can't possibly stay free of anger. We will respond. As long as anything is seen as a threat to our identity, boom, our amygdala is taken over. 
And we end up, this is why so many conversations are really stupid. Like, like, do you ever watch cable news and they have four people talking at the same time, shouting at one another? It's stupid. It's, it's very dumb. They just holler at one another. There's no conversation going on here. This is just amygdala talking. This is just chemical, chemicals flowing through their bodies, spewing out stuff, hollering over one another. It's very unproductive. But as long as we see the person who's aggressive towards us as a threat, we can't help it. We respond out of our amygdala rather than out of wisdom. I was at a theological conference. This is happened a half dozen times to me, probably more than that. But I was at this theological conference, and a guy approaches me, and he's madder than a hornet. This is why I don't go to many theological conferences anymore. It's too much work. But he's madder than a hornet. He comes up, and, and, and he starts spewing on me about how I'm a heretic, and I don't believe God knows everything, and I don't believe that God's all-powerful, and that I exalt human beings over God, and I don't honor the sovereignty of God, blah, 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 blah. Mad! Now, if, if I, if, if my identity was rooted in needing to uh, be right or needing to look smart because there are people around here or needing to win, uh, well, then I probably, my amygdala would have got activated. Oh, yeah? Well, you're a heretic. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, 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 I would have then contributed to the matayotes of this situation. He's bringing disintegration and decay into this uh, relationship, uh, and I would have contributed to that. But I've learned slowly, very slowly, actually, but I am getting there. That, that, that I, everyone, every time I am facing a, an aggressive situation, it's an opportunity to shalom, to practice, to practice uh, getting my identity and life from Christ. And so as he's railing at me, I'm in my spirit just going, my life is Christ, nothing else matters. Uh, my identity is in Christ, my security is in Christ, nothing else matters. God loves me, nothing else matters. And so I'm able to stay in that shalom pocket. And that means you can see, your eyes stay open. You don't get a narrow focus. This guy's not threatening anything that's central to me. And, and so you can keep your eyes open. You can stay listening to God. It, it means you can see the person as something other than just a threat. If your amygdala is activated, that what you're seeing there, you're looking through the grid of your anger, your defensiveness. And so they're not even, you're not even seeing them as a human being. You're seeing them just as a threat. But if you stay in the pocket of shalom because all your life is in Christ, well, now you can see them as a human being, as a child of God. You can see past the surface and maybe see some of the inner motivations, what's going on in their life. As this guy was railing at me, I got a picture in my mind of a little kid in a classroom being teased by other kids for being stupid. And he wanted so bad to look smart. He's crying. I just got this picture. And I don't know if that was a word of knowledge or just a symbol that God gave me to kind of, you know, have an idea of, of some of his motivations. But it meant that I could be compassionate towards him. And so when it was finally done railing, I said, you know, you might be right. I, I, I love screwing people up like this. It's, it's, it's so disorientates them. I, I, I really, you can get to the point where it's fun. When someone's railing at you, you know, the, the, and the more angry they are, the more loving you respond. It's, it, it really gets to be fun. Um, it, it was. And so I said, you know, you may be right. And then I looked for something I could compliment. Uh, so I said, you know, that one verse that you brought up two minutes ago, that is a, a challenge. And so uh, help me out here. How do you think a person who hells my beliefs would maybe would deal with that verse? And see, what I'm doing is I'm empowering him to be my friend. Help me. Save me here. I'm a heretic, so will you help me out here? <laughs> and so instead of bringing... See, he, he had brought disintegration into the relationship, tearing us apart. We're part of the decay world. But now I could bring shalom, which is the, the, the peace of har- and harmony of God. So I'm bringing him towards me. I'm putting a, like an arm around him saying, come on, be my friend, and let's figure this out together. Now his response was, I don't know how you, how you deal with that verse. It's not my problem, it's yours. 
But I, I was able to then have a time where I could explain that most of what he thought I believed I don't believe. He had it all wrong and whatever. And it's not that he agreed with me uh, or even was completely free of anger, but the, the relationship was much more peaceful than it otherwise would have been. We're called to be peacemakers. Peacemakers. That's the noun that we are. But to do it, we have to die to the Matayotes world and on a regular basis, day in and day out, crucify that self, that false self that gets life from the Matayotes world and get all of our life from Christ. And as you do that, you're free. You're free. And now you're free to be a peacemaker instead of one who contributes to the Matayotes world. All right, uh, let's take a few questions. Persecute, I'll just say this. You know, if, if you live in the kingdom, you're going to stand out. You're going to be different. And in the fallen world, we have this thing called xenophobia. We don't like things that are different. So the New Testament assumes that uh, if you're living a distinctive kingdom life, you're going to be different from the, the, the way people normally do life. And so that is perceived as a threat, xenophobia. And man, just be okay with that. In fact, be blessed. Because when, when, when you're persecuted, when you're ostracized, when even family and friends think that you're odd, who on earth would give away a car that they could use to a person who, because they think they need it more? Or who would give half their income during Christmas to people they don't know rather than their own kids? You're going to look weird. You should look weird. It's good to look weird. And so when you're persecuted, remember your identities in Christ. Respond with love. They don't, maybe won't understand. Try to explain, but you might not be able to get there. But know this, Jesus says. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is that when you're, when you're being persecuted, that just means that you're on the right track. You're doing something right. When, when, when your life should either attract people into the kingdom because they want something different, or it's going to repel them because it's a threat. Either way, it's great. Feel good about it. You're on the right track. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. What do we got for questions here? One of my coworkers is driving me crazy. And if you're going to my temper, praying about it hasn't helped. Do you have any suggestions how I can become a peacemaker towards this co-worker? I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, here's, here's one thing that I find very helpful. I actually was going to talk about it and uh, just didn't get to it. But it, it, it's very helpful when, um, I encourage you to do this, in prayer, uh, rehearse for those situations that tend to be most filled with matayotes. All right? Uh, those situations, we've all got them. Those folks in our life, friends, family, co-workers, whatever, who know how to push the button. And, and they can, they get you triggered. Or maybe it's a circumstance. Whenever you're in this kind of circumstance, you're, you get triggered. What activates your amygdala? What makes you do stupid? Um, and, and in prayer, imagine that situation. And then knowing what your true identity is, Envision that. This is faith. Faith is envisioning as a substantial reality that which you do not yet see. Envision that. Prayer should be, at least one function of prayer, is a rehearsal for life. And so practice this. Uh, Imagine this. Run the scenarios. What do you look like in that situation when instead of getting mad and defensive, you put on display the shalom of the cross? What do you look like when you live out your true identity? Uh, How do you respond uh, when, when, you, when your eyes stay open and are listening to God and are looking at the person as a human being rather than just as a threat to you. And run that over and over and over in your mind. It, it's sometimes even helpful if, if there's really a situation that you, know, you just can't seem to get over to practice that with loved ones. I, dress rehearsal. Why not? I mean, look at when folks are in playing baseball or football or whatever, 
you know, they practice. That's why they're good at what they do. Well, we are to be ambassadors for the kingdom out there in the real world. And so it's legitimate to practice for it, to rehearse for it. Um, and, um, yeah, and so in that way, uh, you're better equipped when the situation comes to stay mindful, to stay present, uh, and to remember where you get your life, and then to respond appropriately. All right, got time for one more. Well, I don't actually, but who cares? Uh, if God gave authority to angels who have fallen, why doesn't he just take it back and, uh, from them and bring peace to the billions that are suffering? Excellent. Quit while I was ahead. <laughs> uh, no, no, look, it's a, it's a legitimate, very legitimate question. Um, I, I talk about this in uh, uh, the book, Is God to Blame? And even more in depth in uh, the book, Is, uh, Satan, the Problem of Evil. So you really want to go in depth on that. Um, I encourage you to, to check those books out. Here's my take on it, all right? This is how I make sense out of it. It doesn't have to be yours. Just try it on. Um, free will... Free will has got to be the, a kind of thing that I, I believe is irrevocable. Um, that w- once God gives it, he can't take it back. Now, he's got the power to take it back. Okay, so don't hear me saying God's not all powerful. He's got the power to take it back. But if he gives us free will and he takes it back because we're going to misuse it, then that simply means he didn't give us free will. Free will is the ability to go this way or that way. The way God wants or the way I want. Okay, If I, if I start to go down this road and he takes it back... Well, then he clearly didn't give me the capacity to go this way or that way. Yeah. What it means is, if I got the capacity to go this way or that way, I can go this way or that way, and God has to let me do it. Otherwise, he didn't, didn't give me the power to go this way or that way. It's like if God makes a triangle, it's got to have three sides, and if it makes a bachelor, he can't be married, and if he has two adjacent mountains, there's got to be a valley in between. Is this the definition of the term? So, so and, and here's the thing. Uh, this is what in Saint the Problem of Evil I call it's, it's Trinitarian Warfare Thesis number four. Uh, it's the principle of proportionality. And that is the, the, the extent to which you gave me the uh, ability to go this way has to be balanced by the uh, ability to go that way to that extent. Um, your capacity to do good is matched by your capacity to do evil. And, and uh, it's proportionate. And so it, it's kind of a, almost like a, a quant- if you can quantify it, God gives uh, the angelic beings authority to have do this much goodness for this length of time if they choose to, but that means that they have the authority to do this much evil for that length of time. Um, and, and so God can't just pull out his spiritual Uzi and blow them apart or take it back uh, because it's not working out right. I, I think it's, he has to let that play out. Now, there's a thousand and two contingencies uh, that, that would nuance that, but we're painting with broad strokes now. But I, I, I think that, um, uh, that it's something that he has to let carry, work itself out with. He works around it with wisdom now. That's why the Bible highlights God's wisdom at least as much as his power when it comes to providence. You only need wisdom when you're dealing with agents that you're not controlling. Right? Think about it. Uh, if God was controlling the whole thing, he wouldn't need any wisdom at all. He just flex, It's all his muscle. But he gives angelic beings and human beings uh, the power to do, go this way or that way, to this degree or that degree. And when we go that way to that degree, now he has to work around it. Not because he lacks power, but just because he decided to create this kind of a world. Uh, but that is finite. The, our power to go one way or the other is finite. So it comes to an end. And this is uh, the good news. It will come to an end. And there'll come a time when God says, okay, the power I gave is up. Uh, time over. I win. Evil loses. Let's start partying. 
And that'll be a great time. All right. All right. Will there be free will when Jesus comes back? Will it be possible to rebel against God at that point in time? I don't know any details about uh, how this thing is going to wrap up. I'll tell you, I don't know any details. I know all the theories about how it's going to wrap up, uh, but I'm not persuaded by any of them. So I'm what's called a pan-millennialist, which means I think everything will pan out in the end. Uh, I, that's it. Uh, so, so I don't know, you know, how, how, anything about who's going to rebel, whatever. I do know this, that, uh, in fact, I, I talked a little bit about this with the Detroit Lions this morning, that the, we make our choices, but our choices end up making us. We become solidified. Our choices become habits, St. Augustine said. Our habits become our character, and our character becomes our destiny. And so the end state is to be solidified, where you're no longer just a person who chooses love, but rather you're a loving person. And you still choose love, but you do it out of your character. So the highest form of freedom is to the freedom to love without the temptation to do otherwise. That's the highest form of freedom there is. The freedom to choose between love and not love is necessary to get there. But God can't create us with that necessity. It, it has to be done by choice if it's going to be authentic. But the purpose of having this kind of free will is to get us to the point where we just are beings who by nature reflect the character of God. And the ultimate, I think the ultimate end of things is you're either going to be a person who's solidified towards God without the possibility of rebelling or you'll be a person who's solidified against God without the possibility of repenting. And that's what the Bible describes as hell. You don't want to go there. So start now by making choices that are for God, that yield to God, that are under His kingdom, and you develop that. At first it's really hard, but then it becomes more natural, becomes your character, and that becomes your destiny. Uh, can we take one more, even though I'm 14 seconds over? But okay, What is the line between being a peacemaker and subjecting yourself to abuse? <laughs> Never subject yourself to abuse. Never subject yourself to abuse. Love your neighbor as yourself, which means you love yourself. And so if you would do, do, do it to another person, don't let any person do it to you. You have unsurpassable worth, and, and, and don't subject yourself to anything that, uh, that, that is otherwise. Um, that's not being a peacemaker. Being a peacemaker, it doesn't preclude you standing up. If there's abuse, no, you've got to confront that. It doesn't mean that you run from conflict. That's, that's the Minnesota nice version of, of peacemaker. I know, a, a Jesus peacemaker something means this. You manifest the shalom, the harmony of God. And in the harmony of God, there is no abuse on anybody. In the harmony of God, there's, there's no one treating anyone as worthless. In the harmony of God, what you're bringing is uh, un, the unsurpassable worth of the cross that the cross communicates to every person, including yourself. And so you, the way you respond to a situation always reflects their worth, but also your worth. And sometimes it means, and this is sad, I'll end with this. Sometimes, as you're manifesting the love and the harmony and integration of God, if a person will not change their abusive ways towards you, it means you say, sayonara. I've got to walk away. Because staying here, letting somebody abuse you, is not good for you or for them. Uh, the only way they may learn that um, this isn't the way to treat people is by you saying, it grieves me. But I have to walk away. Um, and um, maybe in that way, you have a hope that they will eventually turn and see the consequences of their, their wrong behavior. 
How should I have peace when others I love are being hurt? How can I find peace towards a father when he abandons my children? All right. All right. This is a very Mateote situation. Uh, here's the thing. It is possible to, on the one hand, aggressively interact with something to stop something. And at the same time, have a peace that passes understanding. It passes understanding because your understanding says that you shouldn't have it, but you do have it. Because all of your life is in Christ and you're trusting, your trust is in God to ultimately work things out. But look at God intervenes. God aggressively stops things. But I think we can all agree that God has, uh, has a peace that passes understanding throughout his whole being. God is always, in terms of who God is, there's a wholeness there, there's a joy there. It's possible to empathize, to be, to be invested in the, and to feel the hurt of another and to take whatever action God leads you to take to stop that or to correct that. But at the same time, to have this inner peace, this, this harmony. In fact, I submit to you that you will be much better at helping folks who are being hurt and intervening in situations that have war and conflict in them. You'll be better at... Uh, uh, aggressively uh, taking whatever action needs to be taken to bring an end to abuse when you're not sucked into it. When you get sucked into the matayotes, well, now, see, it defines you. you. You won't have the wisdom and the insight that you otherwise would have to take the right action uh, to, uh, to, to uh, correct the, the situation, to right whatever's being wronged. Um, and so I encourage you to all, to enter into situations when you, when you can love the abuser, even as they're abusing. You hate the abuse, and you're going to stop that. And you, you, you sacrifice your own self, if necessary, to stop that. But when you do it out of love for the abuser, you'll be able to do it better than if you're hating the abuser or seeing the abuser as a threat to your identity. You see what I'm saying? And so we, we go through life uh, operating out of a fullness uh, that we have through, from Christ for free. And that empowers us. It's, it's really, when, when, when you die, you live. When you lose your life, you find it. When you die, die to the Matai Otis world, you are, have now a fullness of life that empowers you to be more compassionate towards others, to be more effective in resolving conflict, uh, to have a wisdom when you intervene in situations, precisely because you're not one of those who are caught up in the whole mess. Those who are caught up in the mess, they, don't have, they, they can't step outside of it and, and see what could bring peace. It's like Jesus prayed when he's going into Jerusalem. He's crying because he sees judgment coming on Jerusalem. He says, Father, they did not know the ways of peace, the ways that make for peace. The only way you can know the ways that make for peace is if you yourself have peace. You can't give what you ain't got. So have peace. Have harmony in the core of your being by anchoring every part of your identity, worth, significance, and security in in the love of God revealed to you on the cross. And now you will be a wise and effective peacemaker. It's who you are. It's your identity. You'll shine when there's darkness all around. All right. I'd like to call the uh, prayer teams to come up here. And if you are here and have any need whatsoever, uh, I encourage you to come and get that need prayed for. Uh, this is the body ministering to the body, all right? In two minutes, I'm going to be back at the, uh, uh, at the gathering, uh, the hub thing. And I'm going to stand on a chair, and I'm going to raise these tickets, and I'm going to start taking some pledges. You don't have to have the money with you, but you have to be honest and make pledges. Uh, and it will go to uh, this wonderful ministry that's part of Woodland Hills Church. 
uh, here uh, over in Rwanda. So Father, we just thank you, God, for bringing us together, for your word teaching us, uh, God, for this uh, wonderful time of worshiping you together. We pray, Lord God, that as we leave your Holy Spirit, will you be a constant reminder, a post-it note in our hearts and minds, reminding us that all of our life and worth and identity has to be rooted in Jesus Christ alone. And then, Father, help us to be conduits of peace, having an identity that is peace, shalom, and manifesting peace in every situation, however full of anger and conflict that may be. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's peacemakers said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you out there in two minutes. Vikings, it's going to be good. We're going to win.